Let's open your Bibles to the book of Jonah, okay? We're going to do part two of a series we're doing through the book of Jonah. We have already preached the first two chapters, and this uh, morning we're going to do the next two chapters, three and four of the book of Jonah, okay? As I introduced this book uh, last time, um, we are often too over-familiarized, too well acquainted with certain stories of the Bible that we kind of lose focus um, of the details of the real purpose of the written story. So my purpose this morning is to help us uh, see and understand the book of Jonah for uh, what it's worth, for the, the purpose for what it was written. And to do that, we, we're going to try to uh, follow the intent of the author who wrote the book of Jonah. I want to listen to the story closely, like we have perhaps never heard the story before. And if you haven't, or you weren't here last time, I would invite you, these sermons are being recorded, I would invite you to listen to them. You can ask um, Luis for some help to, to get a copy of, of the first part of this series. And we're dealing more specifically with the grace of God. Uh, I believe the book of Jonah pictures a portrait of the, book of, of the grace of God as no other uh, book of the Bible does. So this morning is a continuation, is a, is a second part of, 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 of this, our study of the book of Jonah with a specific um, focus on the grace of God. That's what we're studying, okay? And for that, on the first two chapters, just as a refresher, we, we, we saw the story of a man that, that is a prophet of God named Jonah who ran away, uh, or whose intent was to run away as fast as, as, and as uh, he could in the opposite direction of where God was sending him uh, to preach and to proclaim a message of grace. And he was stubborn. He didn't want to do that. Uh, yet the Lord pursued him in his grace. And he actually, we, we saw in chapter 1, the Lord actually conspiring with the wind of nature, with the seas. Uh, and he used everything to bring this man to a moment of desperation. A moment that was perfect for this, for this man to repent. Uh, and that moment was specifically when it seems like he got what he wanted, which was to basically commit suicide by being thrown to the, to the sea. But we have God sending a big fish, right? We know the story. It's not a big whale. It is a big fish that actually swallows this man, and he's inside the fish for three days and three nights. And we read the, the prayer of this man from inside the belly's fish. Uh, and all we see in chapter 2... We, we try to see if this man repents and is wanting to, have, to obey the command of the Lord. Well, we don't see that. We don't see a, a repentant heart. We actually see quite the contrary. We see a selfish heart, a heart that is focused on himself. And yet, in spite of that, we read, and that's how we finished last time, that eventually the fish vomits Jonah, right, on dry land. And it's not necessarily, the fish is not... Um, 
is an instrument of salvation, is saving the man, and is giving him an, an opportunity, a second of opportunity to obey the first command, right? And uh, so that's where we're at. We're at. I, again, I would um, ask you to listen to the first part of the first sermon that I preached a couple of, uh, last, last weekend. Uh, and now, before that, I, I would like us, for us to, pre- to, to pray together. And then we're going to uh, go and walk our way through chapters 3 and 4, uh, the remaining of the book, and see what it has to teach us about God's scandalous grace. Okay? Are you following me? Yes? Okay, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for your mercy, which is new every morning, and for the opportunity that we have today to uh, get together, listen to the proclamation and the explanation of your word, and I ask that your Holy Spirit would apply those truths to our hearts so that we can walk in newness of life. We have been saved from our sin, to walk in newness of life. Not, 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 not just in life, but in abundant life, which we have in Jesus. Father, we know that's, that's not easy to do so, especially in a world that is broken, infested by sin. Sin still indwells or, or uh, still is in us. And Father, I ask that you will give us of your grace to understand the text and be changed by the text. Father, help us this morning to listen with attention, listen carefully what you have to say to us. May we think of ourselves and our relationship with you this morning, and how this grace affects us on a daily basis. Father, we with us, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, convict our hearts. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you have your paper which, and, and a pen or a pencil, I'm going to give you four points this morning, and we're going to walk through chapters 3 and 4. So the first point that you want to write down that will help you to kind of understand what we're um, covering is the first point we're going to see it in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 3, and that's an unmerited repetition. An unmerited repetition. Unmerited repetition. Let's read chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. It says... Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, listen, a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. We're going to read only the first half of verse 3 of chapter 3. Now, if you remember the first part of the book, I mean, these words of chapter 3 sound very familiar to the words that we have read before in chapter 1. There are, in fact, almost a word-for-word repetition of the command that was issued on chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So flip in your Bible and go to the, the first chapter, and you're going to see, look, look at this, verses 
1 and 2 of chapter 1 of Jonah. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Chapter 3, verse 1, Then the Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Do you see the, the connection? Do you see how, how it has a, a certain familiar ring to us? The story, listen, the story is basically starting all over again in a sort of a, a, deja, a deja vu, okay? It's, it's kind of starting all over again, this story, in chapter 3. And while Jonah had taken quite a detour from the first command, God's grace, God's scandalous grace, does not allow the prophet to wander indefinitely, of course. He has taken a, a detour. I mean, he was supposed to go to Nineveh, and he was going in the opposite direction. And despite the big detour, God's grace was still not giving up on this man. Jonah is granted here a second chance despite his unrepented heart. A second chance to follow through on that command that God had initially given him in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And in chapter 3, verses 1 and, and 2, Jonah hears the word of the Lord one more time. He listens to the word of Yahweh one more time. And although that command is similar in nature to chapter 1, the repetition is not quite exact. There are some changes. And what stands out at first sight is the word again. Look at this. Chapter 1, verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Chapter 3, verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah again, or a second time. Do you see that? That's different. It stands out. Why? Because of the simple reason that it is a first departure from the wording of the original commission. The word of the Lord is coming to this man again, a second time. There are only four other occasions in the entire Old Testament where this word is added to a prophetic message, to a prophetic word. Go with me to Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Jeremiah, chapter 1. You got it? Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 13, it says like this, The word of the Lord came to me again, a second time. What do you see? And the word of God continues, right? Chapter 13 of Jeremiah, you will see that again. Chapter 13. 
Then the word of the Lord came to me again or a second time. Chapter 33 of Jeremiah. While Jeremiah was still confined, verse 1, in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him a second time. And then you can go to Haggai, and we're not going to go there for the sake of time, chapter 2, verse 20, and you're going to see these are the four other instances in all the Old Testament where the word again or a second time is used with a prophetic utterance, with a prophetic word, with a prophetic message. In these other cases, with Jeremiah and Haggai, however, the Lord's second word is an an addendum to the previous revelation. It's kind of a, a clarifying word. It's a reassurance. Sometimes it's an extension of what the Lord has previously said to the prophet. But here in Jonah, it's different. Here in Jonah, it's different. Only in the book of Jonah does the word again or a second time signifies a second opportunity to do what God requested in the first place. That is very different from Jeremiah and Haggai. Okay? That is very different. All other four instances, the Lord is clarifying, making an extension of a prophetic word that came before. But only in Jonah, we find the word again or a second time being used to signify a second opportunity for the prophet to do what God required for him to do in the first place. In fact, if you want to think it this way, Jonah is unique among the prophets in his receiving a second chance to obey God's command. He's quite unique on this. Why? Because prophets were typically judged more quickly. Prophets were typically judged more severely because of their special calling and privileged access to divine revelation. Go with me for a moment to 1 Kings. Let me illustrate this with this story. 1 Kings chapter 13. Look at this. 1 Kings chapter 13 verse 20. He says, while they were sitting at the table, listen, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back. And he cried out to the man of God who had, came, had come from Judah, this is what the Lord says. Listen, you have defied the word of the Lord and have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. You came back and ate bread, and drank water in the place where he told you not to eat and not to drink. Listen to the consequence. Therefore, because you ate and because you drank where you were not supposed to do, therefore, your body will not be buried in the tomb of your ancestors. Keep on going. So when the man of God had finished eating and drinking... The prophet who had brought him back saddled his donkey for him. And as he went on his way, a lion met him on the road and killed him. 
and his body was left lying on the road in fulfillment of what it was just said. You are not going to be buried. It says that his body was laying okay, on the road with both the donkey and the lion standing beside it. And some people who passed by saw the body lying there with the lion standing beside the body, and they went and reported it in the city where the old prophet lived. Look at this. This is an incredible illustration, example of a prophet, of the kind of judgment, of severity that the prophets would experience when they would disobey the word of God. They had a special calling. They had a special sort of access to the Lord of Israel, to the divine revelation. And whenever they disobeyed, these sort of things happened. A lion came out and just devoured him. Now we go back to Jonah. This doesn't happen with Jonah. We see no lion. I mean, we could have in chapter 1. But we see no lion. In fact, the only animal we see so far is a big fish. But the big fish is not an instrument of judgment. It is an instrument of salvation. It's quite different. Do you see where I'm going? In Jonah, God is making an exception with this prophet in order to grow in this unwilling heart a desire for God's untamed grace. And in the second command to go to Nineveh, the message Jonah is to give is hinted at, but it's not shared. Look at this. Chapter 3 of Jonah. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you, or I am about to give you. Proclaim the message I am about to give you. In other words, the message is not given to us. The message was one that God was about to give to the prophet. But it is left unspecified to the reader. We, we're not given details of what he's supposed to say yet. So the emphasis seems to fall on delivering God's word. That's the emphasis of the passage. Jonah, go and deliver the message that I, uh, I am about to give you to the people that I am sending you to. So Jonah knew two things by now. First, he knew where he should preach. Where? Where is that? Nineveh. Nineveh. And the other thing he knew is the source of his message. Who was the source of his message? God. He didn't know the message just yet. But he knew where he was supposed to go and where was the message coming from. What was his job then? Well, his job, when he got the message that he was about to, or supposed to deliver, his job was then to deliver the message. His job was not to critique the message. His job was not to edit the message. His job was not to revise the message. He needed to say exactly and only what God was about to tell him. He was being held to a tight leash in terms of his verbal freedom. 
You go and deliver what I am about to tell to you to do. That's it. You don't add to this message. You, do, you don't subtract to this message. You just deliver the message. Very similar to what preachers are supposed to do, teachers are supposed to do today. Just preach the message. Preach the word. There is a tight leash. This is not time for Jonah to become creative and give his own version of the message. You just need to deliver it. Be obedient, Jonah. And as we know, in the initial command in chapter 1, Jonah, in chapter 3, also rises in keeping with God's initial commandment. Remember, go to the great city of Nineveh. Go to the great city or get up. We see that in chapter 1. We see that in chapter 3. So Jonah, verse 3 says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. Or another way of translating it is, Jonah got up. Just as he did in chapter, three, in chapter 1. But whereas in chapter 1, Jonah got up only to flee to another city from the presence of the Lord, now we read in chapter 3 that he went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. He obeyed. Don't miss the point. He obeyed in chapter 3. The last time God called, Jonah headed west. This time, in response to God's call, he's heading or he's going northeast in that direction, in the direction of Nineveh. Interestingly, we are not told what is going through Jonah's head. We are not granted access to his thoughts, to his heart. We don't know how he's feeling just yet. Maybe because what he's thinking is not as important yet in the story. But that he was required to obey, to obey is what is important here in chapter 3. And he did. He obeyed. He went up according to the Lord's command and he went to Nineveh. And at this point in the story, we, we must take a break. We must take a, a little break in the story of Jonah and allude to the New Testament. So go with me to the New Testament for a moment. Go to Matthew 16 because I think this is an a fascinating parallel between these two stories. Matthew 16, verse 13, says this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciple, who do people say the Son of Man is? So some of them replied, some say it's John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, still others say you are Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So it is clear that people at that time thought that Jesus was at least some kind of a prophet. But what about you, he asked. What do you say I am? Jesus asked the disciples. So Simon Peter replied and he said, you are, listen, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, listen to Jesus' reply. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. 
Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Don't miss the point. I mean, we can go theologically on so many things here in chapter 16. But Jesus here calls and refers to Peter as Simon, son of Jonah. So this might suggest that there is a connection between the apostle and the prophet of the book of Jonah. Jesus here, through the use of a, of a pun, right, a play on words, he possibly is making a parallel between Peter's flight from his calling to that of Jonah from his calling as well. Remember Peter? He also fled from his calling. In fact, Peter's threefold denial of Jesus is the culmination of a persistent rejection of Jesus' call to follow him to the cross, to go to the end with him. And this rejection first surfaces, you know in what chapter? In this precise chapter, in Matthew 16. If I go a little bit down, verse 21 from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So Peter took him aside, because he knew better, I guess, and began to rebuke him. And he said, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You shall never go to the cross. You shall never receive an unjust treatment. This is the same context in which, in which Peter is called the son of Jonah. Just like Jonah, remember, go with me to chapter 21 of John, beautiful picture here, chapter 21 of Jonah, because we know that on the one hand, Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, on the other hand, he's not willing to let Jesus go to the cross and suffer like he was supposed to do since Genesis 3.15. He tells Jesus and the disciples that he won't deny his master, and he does three times. And we come to John chapter 21 after he has denied Jesus the three times. And verse 15 of chapter 21 says, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Peter, Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, look at that, He's not called son of, son of Jonah here. Do you love me more than this? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Jesus, he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, well, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because what? Jesus asked him the third time. Notice that he got hurt 
when he realized that he asked him the same times that he had previously denied Jesus. Three times. Just like Jonah, Peter, in his ministry, receives a second chance to submit to Jesus' commission to follow the way of the cross. The costly way of the cross. Simon, do you love me? Do you love me enough to go the way of the cross? And Jonah and Peter alike are witnesses of the God of the second chances. God is a God of second chances. And he patiently waits for his servants to embrace the call of his grace. That's what we see here in the first three verses of chapter 3. That's my first point. My first point is an unmerited repetition. He was not supposed to get that second chance. He didn't... This was just another demonstration of God's grace. An unmerited repetition. A God of second chances. Point number two. We're going to see it in verses, the second part of verse 3 all the way to verse 10 and we see an unmeasured response an unmeasured response back to Jonah chapter 3 verse 3 now Nineveh was a very large city it took three days to go through it verse 4 so Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, was put on sackcloth. So when, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation that the king issued in Nineveh. But the decreeing of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? Perhaps God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Verse 10, so when God saw that what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So we see here that the narrative briefly pauses, right? At the beginning of chapter 3, we see an unmerited repetition. That word of the Lord comes again to this unrepented prophet. Right? And now, we're giving a, a brief comment. And this is an important comment. This is kind of a, a, a parenthetical note in the story, in the narrative. And this information is very important. Don't miss the point. We are told that Nineveh was an extremely great city. 
a three-day walk CD, that big of a CD. This is the third time that we are told that Nineveh is a great city. We see it in chapter 1, verse 2. We see it in chapter 3, verse 2. And we see it now in chapter 3, verse 3. Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days. Don't miss that. It took three days to go through it. This was a big city. However... Here we're not just told that the city was big. Here we see that the magnitude of the city is juxtaposed with the enormity of the task of Jonah. He was supposed to go to the city and proclaim, right, the message. And he was about and supposed to cover the whole city. It was a three-day walk city. It was a big city. So the task of Jonah was also big. He had to cover the whole city. For Jonah to have accomplished God's command, he would have to travel to several sections, speaking to as many groups of people as possible during three days. That was his task. I mean, there wasn't Facebook on that day, nor Instagram. It was not like recording himself and sending a video to the different pockets of the city and people, groups. No, he was supposed to go preach the message, step down and go to another place and preach the message and step down and cover the whole city. Three days. That is a big task. So in verse 4, we read what? We read that Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaim, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed, will be demolished. That was his message. So, his obedience continues to look promising, right? I mean, he went up, he went to Nineveh, and now we find him, and he's actually in Nineveh. He's walking on the first day of that three-day journey, and he actually delivers a message. Okay, so far, so good. In 40 days, you're going to be demolished. It looks promising. He's obeying. Not only did he go to Nineveh, but he began to go through Nineveh preaching the message. But don't miss the point. Jonah only covered a third of the city. Jonah only covered a third of the city. He traveled the bare minimum until he issued the message. Notice that he didn't even reach the heart of the city. He didn't even reach the center of the city. This points out that there was still a problem in Jonah's heart. This impression or this suggestion is later confirmed in, chapters, in verse 6. When we hear that, that the word reached the king of Nineveh, that is important. Don't miss the point. He says that the word reached the king of Nineveh, which indicates what? Indicates that the king's second-hand knowledge of the message came by virtue of the citizen's reaction. Jonah 
did not even make it to the center of the city, nor he even talked to the king. I mean, the king found out because of the reaction of the citizens, not because Jonah took it to heart to go and deliver the message to the most important person in the city. In fact, what perhaps might be a suggestion or something, an impression, something that we don't see very clear in the text, it starts to get confirmed by this little observations. But notice something else. Look what is absent of Jonah's message. He never points out the origin. Where does he come from? He never points out where is his message coming from. Now you might say, well, is that really important? Yeah, it is. Prophets in the Old Testament typically were very careful about validating their message with statements like this. Thus says the Lord. And then, boom, and the message comes, right? Thus says the Lord of Israel, and then deliver the message. But we don't see that with Jonah, right? Jonah included no such marks of validations to his message. And we might say, well, he was not addressing the people of Israel. That's perhaps the reason why he was not telling them where the message is coming from. But... It is fascinating that Moses, who addressed a similar audience, I mean the Egyptians, people who didn't have a relationship with God, he was very careful to indicate where his message was coming from. I mean, let me give you one example just for the sake of time, but Exodus chapter 4, and you can um, write down the other verses. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. So in verse, in chapter 5, we read the obedience of Moses. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord said, the God of Israel, let my people go. Look how he's validating his message. You can see that in chapter 7, verse 17. You can see it in chapter 8, verse 1, 8, 20, 9, 1, 9, 13, 10, Three, all verses where we see that Moses is validating where his message is coming from. He's not creating this message. He's just delivering the message. And it comes from God. But Jonah doesn't do that. Jonah doesn't validate his message. He doesn't even cover the whole city. In fact, later... In the fourth chapter, and I don't want to get ahead of the story, but we learn that Jonah preached this message with the secret hope that Nineveh would be destroyed. In chapter 4, we are granted access to the heart of Jonah, something we haven't seen so far. And we can read, just like 
God reads our intentions, we can read the intention of Jonah. And what was his intention? What was his desire? His desire was for Nineveh to be burned. He wanted no repentance. He just wanted to drop the prophetic bomb and let it explode. Nineveh burn. That's all he wanted. That was his motivation. He didn't want salvation. He didn't want these people to experience the grace of God. And think how ironic that is. He just himself experienced God's grace in his own life, and now he turns around and makes it as difficult as possible for the Ninevites to experience the grace of God. God wants me to cover three days worth of journey to the whole city. I only cover one. I don't validate my message, and I hope they burn with fire from heaven. You know what this is? This is a graceless message delivered by one living in the shadow of an experience of grace. A graceless message. How ironic that is. He just had experienced grace in his own life. And despite the shortcomings of the prophets, and despite his graceless delivery, we, need, we read in verse 5 that the Ninevites respond immediately. The men of Nineveh believed in God, the text says. Not only did they believe in God promptly, but they also began to act upon in an impressive manner. Verse 5, it says that they proclaim a fast and dress in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. In other words, everyone took part on this mourning, in this repentance. Everyone was humbled. A remarkable response affected by the God of grace. Now notice that not only after the Ninevites began to respond to the message that we read in chapter 6, that the king of the Ninevites also started turning from his sin. So he didn't hear from Jonah. He was reached by secondhand knowledge. And he immediately, we read, that he removes the clothing due to his position, I mean, this important clothing, and removes himself from the seat of power, from his throne. And we read that he seats himself and he places himself in the last place that you could expect a powerful leader to seat. And he sits on a pile of trash, on a pile of dust. To the point that his mindset is one of utter desperation. I mean, the king is desperate. He even petitions all citizens, as well, notice, all the living creatures, right? That what? He petitions them not to even drink water with the hope that God will turn from his anger and relent the coming judgment. Even the animals. 
that have no will of themselves. No water for you. No food for you. And the king does so independently of Jonah. In fact, look that Jonah is out of the picture at this point in the story. He's not even mentioned. His single day venture into the city was over. That's it. I delivered the prophetic bomb. I'm out. Yet we see an incredible response of the people. And God ensured that his message would reach the king of Nineveh even without Jonah's full cooperation. And I love that because God does as he wills with us or without us. And as if God's grace wasn't scandalous yet or enough, wait until you read verse 10. Verse 10 says that when God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways, God relented from the disaster he had threatened them to do. And he did not do it. I love that verse. Notice that the text is very specific. Notice that the text specifies what action captures God's attention. It is not their fasting that capture God's attention. It is not their acts of mourning, of repentance, their cries that caught God's eye. No, 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 no. What is getting God's attention? It is their turning from evil. That's what the text says. And this is important. Why? Because both fasting and mourning are signs of their deep um, desire to appease God, but they are outward signs. And these outward signs can be fake or not. Crying? Crying can be faked. Mourning can be faked. We read in the New Testament that there is even worldly sorrow, worldly grief, something that looks like repentance, but it's not. It's like those cheap brands, right? That looks like Nike, but it actually reads Mikey. It looks like Puma, but it actually reads Pumba, right? It's, it, it's, it's not that. And there is worldly sorrow. There is worldly grief. There is something that is very look-alike, like real repentance, but it's not. And can be faked. God was not impressed by their mourning. He was not impressed by their crying. He was not impressed by the animals not even drinking. He was impressed, you know, by what? By them turning from their evil, period. That's repentance. Turning away from evil. That's what God wanted. That's what they did. And that's why God relented from, coming, from the coming judgment. He relents. No fire. 
There is no brimstone stone that falls on this city. And God pulls back his hand of judgment in light of Nineveh's sincere and genuine repentance. Sincere response. Repentance. God is giving them a second chance of grace. And they got it. They understood. We're repenting. And they repented. Repent while you can. Hebrews chapter 12 speaks about an Old Testament figure. Look at this. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 17. Actually, let me read verse 14. And this is a warning for everyone. Listen carefully. Verse 14 of Hebrews 12. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It doesn't say maybe you will see the Lord. That's a fact. Without holiness, you are not going to see the Lord. See that no one falls short of the grace of God. The same grace that reached the Ninevites, that reached Jonah. It says, see that no one falls short of the grace of God. And that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. Who for a single meal, listen to this, for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his blessing, he was rejected. He wanted his blessing back and he couldn't get it. And listen to the, 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 the ending. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, with grief, even though he, he was... Sorrow, he had sorrow, he was grieving, he was crying. He could not change what he had done. He could not repent. He could not reach repentance. It was past that point. Repent while you can. Because there is a moment in which God lets go. And allows for judgment to come. Repent while you can. Don't sell your salvation. For a little bit of lust. That's what Esau did. He sold his blessing for a plate of food. Chapter 4, we reached, we see an incredible response of the Ninevites. And in chapter 4, we read an unbearable resentment. That is the point number 3. An unbearable resentment. 
chapter 4 says, we, we, we read at the end of chapter 3 that God did not bring the destruction that he had threatened them. And in chapter 4, read this, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall my, by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew, I knew that you were gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. This is incredible. Jonah's reaction of God's relenting of judgment is peculiar, to say the least. Verse 1 says that Jonah was very displeased. This seemed very wrong to him. Jonah got angry that God would defuse the prophetic bomb that he himself had planted in Nineveh. This was not right in his own eyes. How could you, God? How could you defuse the bomb? In fact, another way of translating chapter 4, verse 1 is, and this was gravely unjust to Jonah. This was gravely unjust to Jonah that God would relent his judgment. For him, the situation is falling short of what would have happened. It does not make sense that God would do such a thing. God is totally failing to execute his judgment as the, prof as the prophet Safet. So Jonah becomes furious. He's angry. Jonah, Jonah literally hates what God has done and has the audacity to condemn his actions. He hates that God has shown grace on the Ninevites. And the text goes even a step further. Because in chapter, chapter 1, verse 2, and in chapter 3, verse 2, we're told that Nineveh was considered evil. Was considered evil in the eyes of the Lord. Yet here, and some translations don't, don't have it, but here it actually says that this was evil to Jonah. Right? That the, the, the same word is applied to Jonah. In other words, the evil that was once a quality of the Ninevites now is describing the prophet. What a turn of events in the story. Now Jonah takes the place of Nineveh in the story. He himself places at odds with the very God that he is representing. And Jonah resentment prompts him to address God. But just as in chapter 2, it was demonstrated that there was an unrepentant attitude, an unrepentant prayer, so too we see here a prayer that is not genuine, that is selfish, someone that is angry with God. And his attitude is one of extreme selfishness. And selfishness, again, like we saw last week, is one of the marks of an unrepentant heart. A heart that, and that, that you can decorate with a bunch of cute little words, of orthodox words, of prayers. 
but that it is not sincere and genuine, that is apart and far away from God. And after trying to flee from God and being quite unsuccessful at doing so, Jonah fails to repent in chapter 2, given the opportunity to do so inside the big fish. And now, after delivering the message to Nineveh, Jonah talks to God with an air of condemnation. He's angry with God. And if you want to translate chapter 3, verse 2, in a more colloquial manner, you can translate it this way. Jonah faces God and he says, didn't I tell you that you wouldn't, wa- that you wouldn't follow through with this judgment? Didn't I tell you that, Lord? Didn't I tell you that you, wouldn't f- that you wouldn't follow through on punishing them? I knew it. I knew it and I tried to stop it. That's what Jonah is saying, basically. His, his actions in chapter 1 were an attempt to prevent God from acting like God. He knew exactly who God was, so he did not want God to be gracious with these people. He knew God. Now notice, this is important, that Nineveh is not part of the complaint. You see that? Nineveh is not part of the complaint. He's not angry with Nineveh, nor with the citizens of Nineveh. Jonah is not angry with them. Neither is he angry with the response of the Ninevites. You know what is the root of the problem? The root of the problem of his resentment and selfishness is the character of God. That's his problem. The problem is not the people. The problem is not the Ninevites. It's not the king. It's not the animals. It's not the fish. The problem of the story for Jonah is God. Jonah knows who God is, a compassionate God, and how he relates to people. He has already known this. He always has known it. In fact, if you read the the, the second part of verse 2 of chapter 3, you will see that he is selectively choosing certain attributes of God's mercy that come from Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. When God describes himself. But here Jonah selectively chooses only the qualities that have to do with his compassion, with his mercy, with his grace. But it is his knowledge, brothers, it is his orthodoxy that is causing him problems. Jonah wants God to act contrary to his very own character. God, Jonah wants God to suppress his own natural, eternal inclination to show grace wherever possible. Jonah wants to suppress that. And to a shocking extent, Jonah could not stand God's consistency. God, after all, he was acting in the most predictable manner by showing grace. He has shown since the garden, right? This is the predictable way that God has demonstrated himself to be throughout the story of the universe. But this was non acceptable to Jonah. This was not just in his own eyes. 
And unable to handle God's grace, Jonah, guess what? Asked God to kill him. Oh, Jonah, this is not the first time, remember? We saw this before. And now, Lord, please take my life from me, verse 3, for it is better for me to die than to live. This request mirrors the same request that Jonah asked the sailors in chapter 1, verse 12. The same request. When faced with this theological conundrum, right, that God would give grace to these wicked people, he requested death for a second time. And the words of this verse are remarkably similar to those that we read in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4. And we're not going to go there for the sake of time, but you can write it down. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4, where Elijah cries out, wishing to die. Elijah also wished to die. Moses, in Numbers chapter 11, verse 15, also pleads that God would kill him. But regardless of the similarities with Elijah, with Moses, the situation is very different here with Jonah. Elijah's prof, uh, uh, prayer appears to have been founded upon the seeming failure of God's worship in Israel. Israel's sin had depressed him to a point that he was facing a threat now by a wicked queen. He thought he had failed as a prophet in his prophetic calling. But that's not what we see here in Jonah. The underlying cause of Jonah's prayer was not nearly so admirable. Jonah did not wish to live any longer because God had not carried his judgment on the Ninevites. In other words, unlike Elijah, he was lamenting the success of his prophecy. Elijah was lamenting his quote-unquote failure. He was not a failure. We learn later. Jonah was successful and he wanted to die. Moses laments having to deal with the Israelites' constant complaining over the lack of meat. They wish they had been gone back to Egypt. He was facing obstinate people, rebelling against God. Whereas Jonah, look at the difference. They were not obstinate. They were not rebelling anymore. He was faced with people that had repented of their actions and they had embraced the God of grace. So when we compare Jonah to Elijah to Moses, the contrast is severe, not to say extremely disturbing in comparison, we learned that Jonah had nothing to complain about. Nothing. In fact, he should have rejoiced with great joy. But God's grace was the very source of the prophet's resentment. And remember this. What pleased God displeased Jonah. Jonah was displeased to see that God was pleased with the repentance of these people. And we reach the final point of the story. And this, that's going to be the reminder verses of chapter 4. And the last point is this, an untoughened rebuke. 
an untoughened rebuke. God responds to Jonah's death wish with an untoughened rebuke introduced by a probing question. Verse 4 of chapter 4. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? Is it right? Now, let's be honest. This is not the response we would imagine. We would expect, or we would secretly want God to respond more forcefully. Like he did, remember, like we saw earlier in 1 Kings chapter 13, with the old prophet and the lion. We would prefer something like that. For Jonah to go out of the city, one, two, three lions just devour him. We would expect that. That would be fair. That would be just. But instead of a blast of rebuke, look at this. God reaches out to Jonah tenderly, with care, with compassion. Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? God simply asks a rhetorical question to turn attention away from his character and in turn, turn the attention to who? To Jonah's heart. God wants Jonah to stop focusing on God and blaming God for all that he's doing and to instead examine himself. Is it right for you to be angry? He encourages the prophet to pause, to reflect, not know that God ignores Jonah's request to die. It is not even worth the response from God. Jonah's unbearable resentment is what God wants to discuss with Jonah. Let's discuss this. But just as Jonah fled in chapter 1 after receiving God's command to preach in Nineveh, once again in chapter 4, Jonah silently departs and leaves God's question and answer. Look at this. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah doesn't reply. Verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. He made himself a shelter there and sat in his shade to see what would happen to the city. He doesn't address God. He doesn't respond to God. Stubborn as usual. He resolves to continue in the way of anger, in the way of an unrepentant heart, in the way of selfishness. And perhaps he may have thought that he had convinced God that he was right and that God would carry out his original intention of judgment. Perhaps he thought, sure, God is a God of grace, but divine judgment will definitely win the day. Perhaps he thought that. Or perhaps he even thought that Nineveh's repentance well, will quickly evaporate in the air and they would return to their evil ways. So he went out of the city and sat down at a place east of the city. He probably prepared his popcorn, right? He was ready to see fire come down on the city. He was sitting on the first road. He hoped for a destruction similar to that of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's just waiting in the desert. But look what's going on. Instead of examining himself, which is what God wanted, 
he changed his focus. Now, instead of focusing on God, he's focusing in the city. But that's not the solution. That's not the solution. Rather than examining himself as God has wished, he examines the city. Instead of focusing in his heart, he is focusing on the city. And without any word, his very attitude is as, this, as a defiant reply that says, God, we shall see whether my anger is justifiable or not. Let's wait. Let's see. Let's see if I'm right or not. And God takes an indirect approach. And just as he appointed a big fish to deliver Jonah from drowning in chapter 2, verse 10, he now appoints a plant to provide Jonah comfort and deliver him from his misery. Verse 6, Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy for the plant. Each time God appoints something in this book, it is an act of grace. The first appointment was the fish, and that was an act of grace. And now we see another act of grace, and it is a plant that, was, that God makes grow so that it would bring ease on Jonah's discomfort. And the plant over Jonah corresponds, listen, to the relentent, relenting of judgment over Nineveh. Both the plant and the relenting were act of God's undeserved grace. And Jonah is placed here in the same position of Nineveh. As, a, as the recipient of something that he didn't, receive, didn't deserve. The recipient of God's grace yet again. First was the fish, now is the plant. And whether he's aware of this or not is unclear. But Jonah, we know from the story, is happy. For the first time. For the first time. And it says that it is not just happy. The text says actually that he is deliriously happy. He's extremely happy. And his happiness, his happiness comes as a result of a plant. He should be happy for thousands of people turning away from their wicked ways. But no, he was angry for that. Because God was diffusing his prophetic bomb. And now that he has a leafy plant to ease his discomfort, he is happy. And his happiness is short-lived. It's short-lived. Like many times, when our happiness is short-lived, when we're not focusing on the root of the problem. And in verses 7 to 8, we read like this. After he, we learned that he was happy, he says, but at dawn of the next day, God provided now a worm. We chew the plant so that it wither. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint, and he wanted to die yet again a third time and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Jonah, listen, 
has less than a day to enjoy the relief brought by the plant because God now appoints a worm and he appoints an east wind, two things. And these two things, the wind and the worm, illustrate vividly the judgment that Jonah wished for him to bring on Nineveh. Now, losing precious shade in a harsh environment like the desert is one thing. But experiencing what here we read, the east wind, is another thing. There's quite no comparison like this. Temperature would rise dramatically in the desert, and the humidity would drop quickly all of a sudden, and this, would, this wind would contain constant hot air so full of positive ions that would affect the levels of serotonin and other brain neurotransmitters. It would cause exhaustion. It would cause depression. It would cause feelings of uncertainty, of unreality, and occasionally this wind would cause bizarre behavior. No wonder why in verse 8, we read that Jonah said, it is better for me to what? To die than to live. I cannot handle this anymore. He's completely exhausted, both physically and spiritually. He cannot take this any longer. I'm ready to die. Yet, this merciful rebuke of God is again an act of grace. I already told you, every single time that God appoints something in this book is an act of grace. First was the fish, second the plant, now the worm, and then the east wind. Four things that God appoints in this book. And the four things are four acts of grace. Why? Because this last, the worm and the wind seek to help Jonah recognize God's character and his own inadequacy in understanding. Wake up, Jonah. Wake up. And God does not give up Jonah even when the prophet turns inward yet again. God engages and asks him a question in verse 9. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Notice that the question is very similar to the one that he asked in verse 4. Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? But now he talks about the plant. Is it right to be angry about the plant? Now, this question appears on the surface to have nothing to do with the root of the problem, which was his heart. But it does. God is amazingly and indirectly bringing Jonah to the right point. Why? It is this type of question that prompts Jonah to lower his guard and for the, the first time in the entire book, talk to God, have a dialogue with God. This is the first time before he prayed, but this is the first time that he's talking with God. And what is his response? Notice, before, what was the object of the question? Is it right for you to be angry? The object of the question was his heart. 
self-examination, and that Jonah did not answer because he didn't, didn't want to handle, he didn't want to repent. He didn't want to face a God of grace. But now in verse 7, the focus is not the heart, at least directly. The focus is the plant, and indirectly reveals his heart. And what does he say in verse 9? Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he says, it is. Yes, I am so angry, I wish I were dead. I am angry enough to die. And Jonah's response, that he is well within his right to be angry with the plant that died, has opened himself up to hearing what his real problem is. It also further exposes the depth of his problem. But perhaps he has not realized that the question is really about himself and not about the plant. It's not so much about the plant that he did not grow. He did not grow. It's not about the east wind. This is an indirect question to wrestle with his own heart. Is it right for you to be angry? He's now answering the question that God asked him in, chapter, in verse 4. Yes, it is. But he has not realized that the question is really about himself. So God proceeds to make his final argument with this prophet by means of a comparison. Notice that Jonah does not repent there. And we read verses 10 and 11. Go there. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend, tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? You are concerned over this plant, and I shouldn't be concerned about the Ninevites? What is God doing here? By way of a comparison, God is exposing Jonah to the fact that he alone is God and that it is his divine prerogative to show grace to whoever he wants to. He is God, not Jonah. He is God. No matter how scandalous this grace might be or look like, this is his right, not Jonah. Jonah is just a messenger that's all his. A messenger. How did Jonah respond to this, to this comparison? Did he repent? Or did he retreat farther into himself? Well, read verse 12. There is no verse 12. Okay? There is no verse 12. We don't know. We don't know if he repented or not. We don't know if he decided to go back or buy more popcorn to see if God would still bring fire on Nineveh. We don't know if he really repented or did he retreat farther into himself. And the story is deliter deliberately left open-ended so that we might complete its message with our own lives. 
original, this, this was open-ended so that Israel would complete the message with their lives as a nation. But here, it's, it's a, it, the story is, is, is left open-ended. And we must ask ourselves, and you need to ask yourself, do you struggle with God's character? Do you struggle with God's character? Especially as it relates to God's grace. Do you struggle with it? Do you have problems with it? Are you unable to reconcile your own desires with God's will? That was Jonah. Someone that was unable to reconcile his heartbeat with God's will. Be very cautious. Listen to me. Listen to me. Having good theology does not mean that you are following God. Having good theology does not mean that you are following God. Knowing the character of God doesn't make you necessarily or automatically, I should say, a devout a holy person of God. He doesn't. And God's grace is so scandalous, is untamed, that He will do things that we cannot fathom sometimes. Like this. Reaching the Ninevites. People that perhaps in our eyes didn't deserve God's grace. But who are we to say that? After all, we didn't deserve grace in the first place. So my question is, what are, you going to, what are you going to do? What are you going to choose to do when, good, when God pours out His grace to people who deserve judgment and when you think that that is unjust? Will you arise and obey? Or are you going to arise and flee like Jonah did with an unrepentant heart? This is a day. This is a day to repent this is a day to stop fleeing from God and embrace the God of grace. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your grace because in your mercy, we experience what we didn't deserve. We didn't deserve even to be born. But you have brought us out out of the depth of, of desperation, of sin, being chained to this body of death, and resurrected us to the newness of life. That is all an act of your scandalous grace, which we are not worthy recipients of. Father, I ask that you would wake, make us not, not only to know you more and to have more knowledge of who you are in your character, but also, Father, plant in us desires that correspond with that knowledge. Desires, a willingness, a willing heart to obey, to do what it pleases you. For, for there is abundant riches and blessing, and full life, everlasting life, 
for those that surrender all of their lives, not just a part of their heart, to do your will. Father, work in us by your grace. In your name we pray. Amen.